You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. We live in social groups. We need to be able to exist in social groups. So this first pillar is around reparenting, looking into the early conditioning experience and uh, uh, repairing it if it needs to be repaired. You are born, you are entirely dependent on your caregivers and the, the way that they come to you informs you and creates a working model of yourself and creates a working model of what you can expect from the world. At around five months old, I notice um, these structures forming in the brain that are related to this, this attachment development. By the time you're 10 months old, as I said, you have a working uh, attachment model which can be tested. So there you are, you're born, it's a new environment, you have no language of course. When you're born your brainstem is intact so the inst instincts are functioning. The midbrain is partially formed which is the emotional regulation system and the prefrontal cortexes are not really formed and uh, the right brain is dominant and the left brain is the most underdeveloped. The right brain is procedural memory and the left brain is autobiographical memory. I'm grossly simplifying the neuroscience, so don't get mad at me if it seems too simple. We're born, we're instinctual, anything that moves, we lo look cute. So the human baby, the first thing it does to get somebody to take care of it is look really cute. Um, as cute as you can be. And if that doesn't work, it's confusing. I just looked as cute as I can be and nobody came to take care of me. This is really confusing. And then suddenly it's painful. Why wouldn't they come? And there's a kind of whimpering sound that infants do. And then if nobody comes, there's a, a cry, an intermittent cry that comes out. And then if nobody comes, there's a continuous cry. And then if nobody comes, there's full-blown tantrum mode. And then if nobody comes, there's a complete shutdown. Now, hopefully you lived in a world where cute was enough. Um, have you ever heard a recording of an, a great ape baby left alone in the wild? and what their tantrum mode, sounds like, tantrum mode sounds like. It's loud and frightening and uh, just an amazing amount of energy coming out of this infant. The life expectancy of a great ape baby in the wild if they, they're left by their mother is around an hour. So you can understand the intensity of that. You can understand the intensity of the distress of a an infant that's completely dependent on other care when they get into tantrum mode, shrieking out, you know, I'm going to die if somebody doesn't come. You understand that intensity. But that's a lot of energy to put out, and if nobody comes, then there's this total shutdown where they just go into preservation mode. You really don't want to allow an infant in your care to ever have that experience. 
because it fundamentally changes the, the structure of the brain over time. Um, dor it's called a dorsal dive. The whole system shuts down. It's called a dorsal dive. The whole uh, vagus nervous system shuts down. What, you know, of course, this is conditioning, which is then registered in physical structures of the brain. If you call out and you look cute and somebody comes, then you learn that all I have to do is look really cute and somebody will come. And then you communicate to them in whatever way you can conceivably communicate to them and they attentively attune to you. They attune, that is, they look in your eyes and they read your facial expressions and their body, your body language. They uh, empathetically connect to you. They feel what you're asking for. They understand what you're asking for. And then if they provide it and it's the thing that you want, you recognize that if I do this thing, if I flail in this way, if I look cute in this way, if I cry in this way, the thing that I need will come. And so infants are very uh, dependent on this complete loop. I ask for something, somebody understands me, and then they provide it for me. And if that happens good enough, then the, the infant begins to develop a sense of self or a working model of self that I'm good enough, I can get my needs met. All I have to do is go like this, and then I get the thing that I need. And I can go like this, and the person who's taking care of me can understand what's happening, and understand what I need and then give it to me. So the world is a benevolent place which will take care of me. Is that making sense? The, the human baby's brain is not developed to the point uh, in the beginning where they can really differentiate anyone. It, it takes about five months of growth before the brain develops enough to be able to track who's coming and then we begin our first list of uh, hierarchies of attachment figures. Human infants tend to pick one person to be their primary uh, caregiver and that person tends to be the person who communicates their attachment strategy to the infant. So the infant has uh, some sense of say in this. They pick the person out of the uh, attachment possibilities that are available to them and make that their primary and then they learn that attachment strategy. In the West, we call it stranger anxiety, when the baby starts to be frightened by people that they don't know because they begin to be able to recognize people and to, to prefer. Um, by the time you're 10 months old, we could take you into a strange situation and evaluate your attachment strategy and 75% of us will finish our lives out. 70 or 80 years later with the same attachment strategy that we had at 10 months old. It isn't the only thing. So you might consider attachment as the working model of yourself. How capable am I of getting my needs met based on my experience of uh, in the first year of life calling out to my caregiver and them responding to me? I want to point this out to you because for those of us who are, have a lot of self-blame, what could you have done better at six months old to get your caregivers to be more responsive to you? Maybe uh, you sat them down and said, listen, I've been reviewing the way that you've been showing up for me and in 20 years this is going to be a shit show and you got to get yourself together. <laughs> 
Didn't do that, huh? Maybe you waited until a year. <laughs> It isn't. It isn't. So, where is it an attunement question? You need to attune to the child. I'm attuned to you, can tell. I'm attuned to you, I'm attuned to you, I'm attuned to you. And everybody else can tell where I'm attuned and who I'm not attuned to. We're very sensitive to this. If I attune to you and I smile and look warmly at you, what do you think? I'm being seen, I'm being understood, I'm being cared for. So in some relationships I'm being loved. And what happens if uh, now? What happens now? I'm attuned to you and then all of a sudden I'm not. You feel the opposite, you feel misunderstood, unseen, uncared for, unresponded to. The same thing happens is Oh, the baby's fussing, I'll give it the bottle, and then they don't want the bottle, they want, uh, they're too hot and they want some of the clothes removed. It's a misattunement. Um, what percentage of the time do you think you have to get it right in order for your baby to thrive and be secure? 50%? No. It's 30% uh, of the time, or better. Secure attachment is a really low bar, and I want you to understand that we are a thriving species that is managing to destroy the planet in 150 years. Um, we, uh, we, we survive, right? We go along. 30% is a really low bar. When was the last time you took a test and you got 30% on it, and what grade did they give you? <laughs> so it's consistency. So secure relationships are based on reliability. The child calls out, the child calls out in a specific way, the caregiver has been attentive, is attuned and understand that that is a particular gesture from the child, that it means the child needs something in particular and then they provide that particular thing for the child so that the child has a sense of agency early. If I call out in this way, my diaper will be changed. If I call out in this way, I'll get food. If I call out in this way, I'll get warmer. If I call out in this way, somebody will pick me up. If I struggle in this way, somebody will put me down. So that the baby feels that they have agency and that they can communicate. And you'll notice in infants um, and caregivers who are sensitively attuned and have understood and know their child there's a rapid back and forth communication, very rapid it can get, and subtle changes and adjustments and all sorts of things that can happen, that all is part of this process of, of unconscious learning about how to be in, in connection to somebody else. So for instance, at this distance, nobody really here has a problem attuning to me and you probably don't have an, a, a very intense emotional response to attuning to me at this distance, right? Um, but turn to the person next to you and attune to them. It's a little bit more intense, huh? <laughs> There's a reason for that. Within three feet of a person, 
you can read the micro-emotional expressions in the face and you get a lot more data about what they're thinking and feeling moment by moment. Where at this distance, the eye can't resolve that. I, and I totally cannot resolve the iris in all of your eyes. Um, now, I want you to turn and look at the person a, a foot away from the, their face. <laughs> closer, a little closer, a little closer. How, how intense is that emotional response? <laughs> right. How many people do you let this close? Not that many, right? There, <laughs> there's a reason for that. This close, somebody can decode the fluctuations of your eyes and they'll know what you're thinking and feeling and you won't be able to mask it. They'll be able to read you. Uh, you may say, well, how do I read people's fluctuating irises? Well, you, if you had good enough care, you would have learned to read them from your primary caregiver and you would know what that all represents. And it's all unconscious, right? All of that tracking is unconscious. And that's why there's this well up of emotional intensity in that experience. You are going to be revealing yourself with no ability to mask how you present if you let somebody that close and they will be doing the same for you. Unless you didn't have enough uh, care as an infant and you didn't learn to do it, then this is going to be a real problem for you to get that close because you won't be able to read the information that's available in that experience. And uh, if the other person can, then they can read you and you can't read them. It creates a problem. In the um, Reparenting thing, what we're attempting to do is draw up into uh, consciousness the actual parenting conditions that we face and then provide an alternative to that. It doesn't matter in the perceptual database whether the thing happened to you or you can imagine it happening to you. Um, this is important to understand that as an infant and as a child and as a, as a, a young person, if the experiences of your childhood are, are so painful that to imagine an alternative to it becomes unbearable, you pinch off your capacity to imagine that. If you want loving care but you have cold parents, every time you have their coldness you experience the absence of the warmth as painful, you begin to pinch off the idea that you should have warm care. If you're told over and over again that you can't do that, the desire to do it becomes so painful that you pinch off that possibili possibility in your imagination and you accept that you can't do it. Uh, and uh, you go through your childhood like this, so to just give a quick map, you're born, you're entirely dependent on your caregiver at around 18 months you develop enough capacity to recognize that your parent has an agenda and you have an agenda and they're, they're different and while you can be supportive of your parents agenda you should probably be pursuing your own, right? Um, some primary caregivers can't bear the end of symbiosis. They, they, they can't bear that the child wants to go and explore independently of them and so they will actively prevent the child from doing that 
and usually they do it in the sense of it's not safe for you to do that so I'm going to protect you and that's when the secondary caregiver is supposed to come in and say no 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 the child actually can do this go do it you'll be fine and then they help regulate the other adult to tolerate the abandonment anxiety that comes up from the separation so that the child is then free to explore because if they don't do that the one parent in the attempt to be overprotective or in the attempt to regulate their own abandonment need will curtail the child's capacity to explore. And then the child won't learn to explore and that will be uh, pinched off in the imagination. And you'll notice in people like that that when you ask them to explore they can't imagine what that would be. So what we begin to want to do is map you, the conditioning around your capacity to imagine and then begin to pull out the, the pinches so that the imagination can then be fully functional because we don't actually respond to what's happening, we respond to the conceptual reality of what's happening. The reason why this is important is because if you have in your mind that there's no possibility that you can explore things that are meaningful to you when you create conceptual reality, there won't be any possibility in there for you to explore. It doesn't mean it isn't there, it just means that when you've created your version of conceptual reality, you haven't included any of that. And when you begin to pull the pinches off, and you're using that perceptual database as a way of creating conceptual reality, and all of a sudden those things are in there, when you create conceptual reality, those things are there. This is a, bear, a bitter sweet process. The sweetness is that you can now see that those things that you wanted before are available to you and you can have them. At the same time you recognize that it was a, it was a problem with your conceptual reality creation and that those things were probably always there and you could have always had them but you didn't take them. It wasn't that they were denied to you, it's that you didn't take them because you couldn't see that, that they were available to you. The sweet part is better to have than avoiding the bitterness, right? That you can have these things now is really something to do, right? It's worth doing this. Uh, and then uh, uh, grieving the, 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 the processes that you didn't take because you couldn't see that they were there. Uh, one of the metaphors early on was that you're sitting on the floor waiting for crumbs to fall up off the table because you can't see that there's a chair with a, a, a name card in front of it that's for you. You don't join the banquet because you don't think you can be, you don't think you can join even though everyone's waiting for you to join. Is that making sense? I want you to understand the three pillars approach and this is the first pillar. Understanding that we create the sense of reality that we have that sense of reality that we create is conditioned and uh, because of the nature of conditioning early in childhood we create all of these self-limits and the way that they operate is that we create these realities where the, the possibilities that we don't allow ourselves don't actually exist consciously. Uh, and because conceptual reality is, is not ultimate reality 
if we could allow the process of all possibilities into uh, this creation or this turning of ultimate reality into conceptual reality, then they would be there. So, secure people think of themselves as capable of getting their needs met and they think of the world as filled with people who will meet their needs. If you walked into a room and you thought you were totally capable and that everybody would be interested in talking to you, would you go about the way that you socialize differently than you do now? Right? If you were completely unafraid to walk up to anybody and talk to them because you think that they might be interested in talking to you, how does your day go? Or do you walk into a room and create a social hierarchy and peg yourself really low and then ha hang in the corner because you're too afraid to talk to anybody? Right? And how does that situation go? And understand that these are views. Right? In one view, you can talk to anybody. In the other view, you can't. And if you believe the view, it informs your behavior. Is that making sense? And say in, in a view where you walk into a room and you think you're the, the most interesting person in the room and that everybody else falls short and why would you waste your time talking to them? You're still in the corner not talking to anybody, right? <laughs> Different view. How do you know uh, whether you're going to like somebody until you actually engage them and find out who they are, right? And how inhibited are you? And do you understand the process of that happening? And, and in meditation we can pull all of this apart and you can see all of the pieces and, and then shift them in the direction of more security so that you can actually be in the world, feel safe enough to engage and then also evaluate whether you're interested or not interested and be okay with whatever those outcomes are.